When SVB failed, we came up with scenarios for banks and the economy. How are these scenarios holding up and what does it mean for portfolios? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Julia Herman, standing in for Lauren Goodwin this week, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of April 3rd, 2023, and we're coming off several eventful weeks in the banking space and potentially entering calmer waters ahead. So we wanted to take this week to check in on the initial scenarios that we had formed for U.S. banks when the SVB crisis unfolded, and most importantly, the key themes that we're seeing for portfolios. So I'm saying we here because today we have my partner in crime, Macro Mike Legalbo joining me. So thank you so much for being here, Mike. I feel like we're more co-nerds than partners in crime, but whatever you'd like to call it, Jay, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Let's get, let's get right into the nerdiness then. It feels like a lifetime ago, but three weeks ago, when we wrote our rapid response to the SVB failure, we described three potential scenarios for the market in the wake of the bank failures. Let's keep in mind that at the time, both the bank failures and the regulatory responses were still unfolding. So let's get into those three scenarios. Number one, the more negative scenario, was that the failures were a canary in the coal mine. They portended a full-blown banking crisis ahead, global financial crisis style. Scenario number two, our base case, was that a tightening in lending standards would accelerate the path toward recession that we had already expected. And scenario number three, the more positive scenario, was that if policy had to become more accommodative to support banks, that could result in upside for the market, at least temporarily. I have to say, those scenarios are holding up pretty well. There are plenty of folks in the canary in the coal mine camp who are worried about a really severe crisis, and the risk there isn't zero. But for now, our focus is on the pre-existing march towards recession. Yeah, and I want to leverage these scenarios in providing a bit of a status update on banks for our listeners today, because frankly, things have been calming down a little bit, and I want us all to know why and what could be ahead. So Mike, let's start with that canary in a coal mine scenario, that fear of a broader crisis developing. What makes you think that the scenario is unlikely based on what we know now? So there are three key points of data that uh, are convincing us that we're not really staring down the barrel of a major crisis right now. First, deposits have stabilized according to data from last Friday. So as a reminder on those deposits, there were severe deposit outflows from small and mid-sized banks the week of the SVB failure. The fact that we're seeing a stabilization implies that depositors are feeling more confident, or at least no less confident, that their assets are safe. That brings me to the second point of data that we're looking at. As deposits flowed out of some banks and into larger banks or money market funds, the Fed had to step in and offer liquidity support to banks so they wouldn't face solvency issues with deposits draining out. So positive data point number two, banks' use of these emergency facilities has not grown since the first week of the crisis. Okay, so that means that banks' liquidity needs have not grown. So in my view, that sounds like great news. Mm -hmm. 
And separate but related, positive data number three, where did this liquidity come from? Turns out you can track which branches of the Fed are providing liquidity to their banks. And we found out it's mostly been the San Francisco and New York Feds. All right. So that's probably a function of Signature Bank failing in New York and then SVB and First Republic on the West Coast. So if we connect those dots of deposit stabilizing and banks aren't having to take additional emergency liquidity from the Fed, and the majority of that emergency liquidity support has come from the, the Fed branches that we'd probably expect it to come from, what's your conclusion from all of that? These points suggest the stress in the banking system is manageable and contained by regulators, and regulator support is more targeted than systemic. So as it stands, this hardly sounds like a banking crisis. Let's now explore the base case scenario that I laid out at the top, which was that tighter lending conditions could help to speed the path toward recession, a recession that we had already been expecting. We now expect banks to tighten their lending standards as part of a focus to shore up their balance sheets and liquidity. So Mike, can you help explain how tightening credit conditions can tie to our expectations for economic growth and the business cycle? The business cycle relies on the credit cycle. So when credit creation slows, so does economic growth. Let's remember that lending conditions had already been tightening through 2022. And it's possible, even likely, that the fear of deposit flight, uncertainty around the path of central bank policy, and the risk of more regulation after the SVB collapse will further restrict lending. It's a great point, especially that credit conditions had already been tightening as the Fed was hiking uh, throughout 2022. And, you know, I actually discussed that with our guest on a previous episode about how tighter lending conditions could actually help the Fed in its goal to fight inflation. So are you on board with that idea? A little bit. The Fed believes tighter lending conditions could amount to the effects of one or two rate hikes. Its hope is that slowing growth brings inflation down with it. However, the speed and level at which banks have tightened lending conditions is historically consistent with a hard landing recession. So for those who are trying to follow all these themes right now, what's happening with deposits, what's happening with lending conditions, how can they be like Macro Mike and see this in the data? Yes, it's pretty easy if you know what to look for, which I can tell you. We use the Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, which just asks loan officers if they're tightening or loosening their lending standards. And the Fed creates an index of the percent of respondents that are tightening or loosening. More loan officers' tightening conditions suggest that choice reflects broad market sentiment. And historically, tighter lending conditions have come hand in hand with recessions. All right. So if we are heading toward recession territory, I feel like there's always another shoe to drop in a recession scenario. And a lot of people have been saying commercial real estate is the key risk area to watch out for. I think we can all surmise that with work from home changes during the pandemic paired with high interest rates, this has challenged the outlook for some commercial real estate. But why is everyone talking about it just now that banks have failed? It's simple. A majority of the loans back in these properties are held at small and mid-sized banks. Specifically, banks with $100 million to $10 billion in assets have commercial real estate representing just under a third of their loan book. So the fear is that if deposits keep draining, these banks will not allow credit extensions or refinancings, potentially putting commercial real estate in a crunch. And we just discussed that deposit flows have actually stabilized. So deposits coming out of the system is not necessarily going to be the catalyst for more stress right now. But the commercial real estate example does a great job of highlighting how that tricky balance of assuring confidence can have spillover effects into loans and asset quality and economic activity.
That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. I want to pick back up on our third scenario, which was the idea that if the bank sector needs policy support, that might actually spark a temporary market rally. And even though our base case scenario of tighter lending conditions is playing out, we have seen also rallies in specific asset classes that have resulted from an expectation of perhaps a lighter policy outlook. By specific asset classes, we mostly mean growth equities which have strongly outperformed value equities since the SVB failure. And honestly, we've really had to ask ourselves why, given that the chance of recession seems to have risen meaningfully in the past few weeks. The answer comes down to interest rates. Before SVB failed, everyone was talking about a Fed funds rate potentially reaching 6% this year. Now, half the market thinks that the hiking cycle has already ended at 5%. The majority of market participants now expect a meaningful degree of policy easing in the back half of the year, potentially taking the policy rate down to 4%. And so looking at the chances of lower interest rates, growth equities have soared. On our team, we've been overweight value equities for quite a while, and we're standing by that call. Yes, we want to remind folks about the expectations for tighter lending conditions. Even if the Fed pauses policy rate hikes, the summary lending conditions environment is not looking favorable. Right. So that interest rate relief growth equities have been benefiting from might fade quickly. Then there's a cycle, which you can't escape from. Recession looks likely for the second half of 2023. So investors piling headlong into growth equities now might be paying for growth that never arrives. That's an amazing point. And you've heard us say value, growth, a little of both for diversified portfolios. And that view still sticks. But another angle to consider is timing. Recession expectations have been pushed back for a while now. So there could be a period of relief for more pro-cyclical assets like growth equities that tactical investors could play in that space. So for more long-term investors, we don't see this as a durable regime change warranting a major allocation shift toward growth equities. There's actually one more nuance on growth equities that we need to touch on. Oh, yes. So as investors have faced market volatility and slowing economic activity over the past few quarters, we've really liked quality as an investment theme that encompasses some stocks, some bonds, and even some alternative assets. We're even seeing the quality theme play out within growth equities, namely that profitable tech, including hardware, outperformed since the bank failures. Imagine that, investors preferring profitable companies. All right, so let's also cover the fixed income side while we're here. There's been a truly wild amount of rates volatility. Mike, can you cover how that volatility has affected our views on bonds? Sure, we think it may be better to be positioned near neutral duration to capture both yield and price appreciation in bonds right now. But not all yield curves are created equal right now. The treasury's curve, for example, is still inverted. So it really doesn't make sense to me to add duration there. Exactly. When adding duration, investors can consider long-dated municipal bonds instead. The tax-exempt municipal curve remains upward sloping, and munis have proven resilient amid this banking turmoil. Some of this resilience takes us back to the quality argument. Municipal governments look fiscally healthy, even with tax rates slowing off a high base. Excellent points and a great way to round out this discussion. Mike, thank you so much. It's almost like we talk about macro every day. Thanks, Jay. Have a good one. That's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Julia Herman. 
Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamax and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.